Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Eric Stanley. Um, and the reason uh, he's on the show is because I ran across uh, several, actually, uh, posts of his on Facebook. And every one of them was related to promoting positivity. The interesting thing about Eric is that uh, he plays the violin, uh, but he grew up in interesting circumstances. Uh, he's black. Uh, his parents divorced when he was young. Uh, he began playing the violin at 12 and uh, really connected to it, but he also found that uh, some people uh, were quite cruel, uh, questioning why uh, a black person uh, would or could play the violin. At the end of the day, though, he realized that his mission was uh, to inspire young people and to serve as a role model. Ultimately, this led to him founding One Way Hope and Stay Inspired Capital. Uh, he's also uh, played the violin all over the United States and uh, is a composer uh, as well. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this conversation with a young man who has millions of followers on the internet on various forms of social media, and whose main goal is for those listening to stay inspired. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. On another note, what's interesting is that it turned out several years ago, he actually ran across uh, one of my uh, uh, internet posts and was inspired by that, which I didn't know about. So hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Eric, it's uh, great to have you with me today. I know this is about sort of the third time uh, we're doing this because of technical issues, but uh, how are you? I'm doing really good. I'm doing really good. Uh, one of the reasons I want to chat with you and sort of expose my, audiences, um, my audience to you is actually because of the work you're doing uh, to inspire people, to highlight people who are doing good in the world. And uh, in many ways, uh, our mission is the same. So when I meet people who are um, trying to do that, it always interests me uh, in terms of what motivates them to do it. Uh, maybe you can tell me a little bit about growing up in your own background and if what you're doing today is uh, related to growing up uh, or struggles that you've had uh, in the past. So I started playing the violin when I was 12 years old. And I only did it because my mom wanted me to take an elective in class. Um, I was the shy kid. I didn't really talk that much. Uh, some of my teachers actually thought that I just couldn't speak because I was just so quiet. And I remember going to Short Pump Middle, Middle School in Richmond, Virginia. And I, was, I would sit in the back of the class. And I could barely play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the violin. And I remember how it felt because most of the other kids could play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and I could kind of feel some of the kids, you know, laughing at me and making fun of me and, and things like that. Um, but my teacher, she was one of the first people to believe in me. Um, and uh, she was about, <laughs> she was really nice. She was a really nice teacher, even though I was like, I didn't want to practice. She used to bring, she used to uh, make us bring these practice slips home. And we had to practice like an hour a day or for five days a week. And we had to get our parents' signature. So one day I, I wrote down, I tried to forge my mom's signature and I brought it into class. And she could immediately tell uh, that it wasn't a sixth grader's signature. And she, she didn't embarrass me in the middle of class and say, hey, Eric, you didn't practice. She waited until after class had finished and she said, hey, Eric, 
I know you can do better and I know that you can be better. And that was the first time I actually had someone like really like pour into me that wasn't my family. So tell me about your parents. What 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 did they do or what was their background and why um, maybe it's your mother who was the motivator behind you learning music? So my mom, she is a singer and we all grew up in the church and my dad actually worked, uh, he's still a nuclear engineer and his first job was sweeping in the nuclear, uh, nuclear power plant. And he worked his way up to become a nuclear engineer. And my mom, she always was a singer preaching and things like that. And so I got to see music at an early age. She had a piano in the house and we would play it every single day. So uh, I saw uh, on the website, uh, One Way Hope, that your brother had gotten shot. How, uh, how did that affect you, or, or even what were the circumstances behind that? So one day, my brother, he was on tour. He played backup as a pianist for a number of gospel artists at the time. And he was in Baltimore, Maryland, and he was going to the store, a gas station late at night, and these guys approached him. And they just shot him. You know, I, he said it was part of a gang initiation to kind of prove that they were like, you know, part of the gang. And that experience, when I, when I heard the call uh, to my mom's house, she came in the room and said, Eric, I have some bad news to tell you. I think at that moment, my life really shifted a lot uh, because that was the first time I ever seen or like, experienced something that was really tough in my life. And it took a while for me to process those emotions. I felt a lot of anger, like why would somebody do this to my brother? He's the nicest guy in the world. And it took a, I know it took a lot of time for my brother to heal from it as well. He didn't, at first, of course, he was angry. He was mad and we were all angry and wanted to get revenge and be upset about it but after about three years he said I forgive I forgive the guys who shot me and I think I was like really you forgive them I mean after all they did to you how could you forgive them and that really I think it really opened me up to see a different part of the world one that I had never really thought of before what do you mean by that exactly so I'm a kid, I'm just going through the motions, I'm playing violin, I'm in class. I wasn't really, I didn't really have a big view of the world as a kid. I was just, you know, my parents would just tell me where to go, like, okay, we're going to church today, you know? So I had to get my clothes, all my church clothes, go to church. And I didn't really have a lot of control of, about like what was gonna happen. My parents got a divorce when I was like three years old. And I think that was the first time I realized like, okay, there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on that I have really no say over. And when my brother got shot, that was even more like, I just had no control over it. And it made me realize that the most important thing is, is really the time that you have with your family. Cause it happens so quick. One moment he's out the door, he's going on tour, playing piano and then he's just, you know, he gets shot and something deep down told me that he was, he was fine. He was going to be okay, which was the weirdest thing ever. It's like, he got shot eight times. The normal thought is he's not going to live through this, but he survived. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's sad. Did you continue to have a relationship with your father after they divorced? It, so there was a span of time where um, me and my father didn't really talk that much, uh, except for during like, you know, court proceedings and stuff like that, child custody. And so I saw a lot of friction early on. I saw a lot of, um, negativity early on and constant back and forth. And some, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew that something wasn't right in that moment. Um, and I think that was probably one of the toughest things to get over 
because me and my father, we've, we've, uh, our relationship is so great today, but you would never know from all the time that was spent apart. So what motivated you to uh, start One Way Hope? So what motivated me to start One Way Hope was I realized there wasn't a lot of positive news without like an agenda to it. It seems like when you see news, there's always some type of angle. Somebody's trying to promote something and trying to push some type of politics on someone. And I started One We Hope initially uh, with my brother. And then I asked my sister, I said, hey, do you want to be a part of this positive news thing? You know, and she didn't really know what it was. She was like, OK, look at Eric. He's trying to he's trying to start some new thing. But she's always just down for whatever I got, what whatever ideas I have. And I started One We Hope because my brother would send me these Bible verses of like inspiration when I was in college. And the reason he was sending me these verses was because he was in a rehab program that was like a faith-based rehab program. And so he was like reading the Bible and doing things like that. And he would send me these messages every day. I'm like, bro, why are you send sending me these positive messages? And it would just be simple things like, you know, today is a great day. Be thankful for today. Things like that. And he said, hey, can you put this on my Facebook page? Because you can't have a phone and rehab and stuff. They want you to just be focused on getting clean from, from drugs and stuff like that. And when he got out of rehab program, when he got out of the rehab program, he had like 300,000 followers just from him sending me these positive messages. And I would just take the messages and just post them on his Facebook page for him. And so when he got out of rehab, he had like three, 400,000 people there who were just inspired by the things he was saying and really inspired by how he was able, able to overcome an addiction, which is like heroin was one of the most hardest things to overcome for what he told me, you know? So how many brothers do you have? Just one? Just one. So this is the same one who was shot eight times. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Marcus is a, yeah. yeah he's and, a big part of my story. He really yeah. is. Well, so was he sober by the time, I mean, at the time he was shot? Had he had gone through rehab? So he had or never was done before? anything before. No drugs, never had any addictions. But after he was shot, he was in immense pain. Like he had, you know, his bags on him and stuff, and he was trying to heal. And the doctors gave him all these type of pills. And we didn't really know about addiction and that you could get hooked on these things. So he started, you know, really taking these pills, these opioids and stuff uh, daily, taking too much. Then he would run out and then try to get some more, and then they put a stop on it. And so he just started looking for, he started looking for something that he really couldn't find anywhere else. And I think until he stopped um, touring and focused on himself, he was able to really think about like, how could he fix himself so that he could help other people too? Good. So that it sounds like that was somewhat of a journey for him, huh? How yeah. long, over what period of time was that? So this was from 2001 all Wait. the way until oh. 2012. Oh, wow. That was a long yeah, time. 2012. How and old so is he, he now? Had, he is 35. Wow. Yeah. Actually, he just, he just turned 36. Yeah, he just turned 36. Yeah, I'm getting old. <laughs> yes, uh, aren't, aren't we all? So uh, it sounds like uh, faith and God have always been a part of uh, who you are and in some way maybe defines who you are. Is that the same uh, um, situation with your brother and sister? I think so. I mean, my sister, like, my mom never gave us, she never made us go to church after a certain age. She wasn't like, oh, you got to go to church. She would just let us make our own decisions. So at that moment, I don't, I wouldn't say that that's their identity or even my identity. I think for whatever reason, Marcus was placed there to guide us along this journey, right? I, I try to think about 
I try to be very, very careful with like labels and things like that because it kind of box you in, put you in this like box where it's hard to for other people to understand you. And so when we started When We Hope, we didn't want it to be like this thing where only this type of person can listen to this or only this type of person can watch this or we're only trying to reach this one person because we realize there's so many people in the world that can be inspired by something. And I knew, I always remember what it felt like to be uninspired, to not be able to see my future. I, re I remember days when I was in college and I was like 20 years old and I would just be in my dorm room just thinking like, I can't see my future. I don't know where I'm going. And that was like one of the worst feelings ever. And so that's, that's something that propels me to make these videos too. Because it, it's more of a sense of purpose. I've traveled all over the world. I've played violin. I've done a lot of things. And I reached a point where I was like, okay, what's next? There's got to be something more to just, you know, making money and living and um, trying to be trying to be famous. I was trying to be famous when I was in college. <laughs> I was trying to be like uh, the, the most famous violinist in the world. And I... I guess I kind of reached it, but then at that moment I was like, okay, that's not really, that doesn't really matter. And like people don't, you know, when I, when I leave this earth, that's not going to be something that's, that's important. Well, I think probably for a lot of people who may have heard you or been inspired by your music, that can be, uh, very important, but I think I understand what you're saying. I, I, I think, uh, Maybe it's a larger mission than just music uh, and how that resonates with people, but also um, really how can you change people's lives by inspiring them? What, uh, uh, um, so obviously you're doing One Way Hope, but how did you get into finance? Uh, were you interested in finance in college? Is that what you studied? Um, I, I took two years in college to pursue music, but I wasn't really motivated to play classical music on the violin. I wanted to do stuff that was like freestyling and hip hop and R&B music on the violin. So I, I dropped out of the music school at VCU after two years, and then I switched to business. And I specifically went into a degree, it was called, it was brand new, it was called interdisciplinary studies. And you could kind of like pick whatever class you wanted with the approval, obviously, of the dean and stuff. You couldn't just go and just pick random stuff, but it had to be like, it had to be lined up with your major and like the two focus areas. So mine was music and business. So even though I dropped out of the music program, I still kept playing the violin. I still kept practicing. Uh, I still kept traveling with it as well. But I also took classes that talked about entrepreneurship and business and finance. And I just like to do, I like doing it because I like expanding my mind, learning new things and, and really doing things that I didn't think I, really doing things that I didn't really think was possible. You know? How many, <clears throat> I assume you still practice uh, the violin yeah. every day? I play every week pretty much. I don't practice as much as I used to. I used to practice about three hours a, a day four or five days a week, uh, but I've slowed down a bit. Um, I think one of the things with music, at a certain point, it became a job, and I didn't really like that. I always liked playing the violin just because I like to have fun. And as I started to progress in my music career, I had all these agents and managers and things like that, and it just became not fun. And as, when I took a break from it for about a year, when I came back to it, I realized why it's important for me to still play the violin and still spread music because uh, I realized it's helping people. Sometimes you can't really see everybody, you know, especially on the internet and stuff until you're like in a different city and then somebody comes up to you and they're like, oh, I see you play the violin. I re it really inspired me. I've seen people say things like they were inspired from a video I posted 10 years ago of me playing the violin. I'm like, wow, you remember that? <laughs> well, I think, you know, the reality is that you don't appreciate that sometimes maybe playing the violin or saying a kind word or helping somebody 
uh, can have a huge impact on them that you may think, oh, well, I was just doing that to be nice or I was just doing this for fun. Uh, but uh, these little um, connections that people have with the work that you're doing can really be profound. I, I mean, I've had many people myself come up to me and they'll say, oh, uh, do you remember when we met and we talked about this? And unfortunately, I'll have zero recollection of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but But for those people at that time, Whatever it was that we talked about um, resonated with them, and uh, for many people, it changed their lives. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think you always have to keep that in mind. That uh, uh, in some ways, you have a gift that uh, connects with people, and that connection is one that has the ability to change people's lives, oftentimes. So. Uh, so explain to me the different things you're doing. You, you have One Way Hope. Tell us what that is and how to connect with that. Then uh, Stay Inspired and then Inevitable Capital. How do they intersect? Do they intersect uh, uh, fundamentally? Do they all have the same mission? Uh, so maybe you can explain to the listeners about how, one, what they are, two, how they can connect with it if they're interested. So I've started a lot of things and failed a lot of things too. <laughs> and actually, Inevitable Capital was one that failed about about a year ago, a year and a half ago or so. And I ended up switching that, and I just made Stay Inspired Capital purchase that. And so now everything is just Stay Inspired Capital. But the company started because me and my business partner, who's also another violinist, his name is Daniel Davis, and he... <laughs> He was trading stocks and I was like, oh, that, that seems pretty cool. I've never seen that before. Like, what is the stock market? I had never heard about the stock market. And this was back in 2017. And we had played violin together on different gigs around the country. And he sent me a video and he was talking about algorithmic trading, which is like computerized trading where you can like automate different things with, within the stock market. And I started coding when I was uh, in college in my junior year. And on my free time, I would just learn about Python programming language. I would study for loops. Then I would study variables, how to make the code faster, how to make it quicker. And it almost felt like, it kind of felt like playing the violin. It's something I wasn't good at first, but I just kept doing it, kept doing it. I wasn't really trying to do anything with it. I just like learning new things with it. And he told me about his strategy with trading stocks. I was like, let me see if I can code that in a computer and try to automate that. So I worked on it for about three years. Nothing worked, nothing happened. And I left it alone. And then it started working, started gaining revenue once I just stopped focusing on it and just let it just run. <laughs> So uh, so this is a thing now. I mean, is this just your money or other people's money? or, And and, and what do you do with the profit? Is it just really uh, profit-oriented for to support your work? Or, or what are you doing? Well, I didn't want to do anybody else's money yet because I wanted to see if it works for a number of time. At least like, at least like five years. If I did like, if, if I came out and said, hey, I want to trade somebody else's money, I only did it for two years. <laughs> They kind of be like, well, that's, I need some more time. So I want to see what happens um, throughout different market cycles that then I might think about opening up. But currently it's just me and Daniel working so, on it. So uh, how long have you been doing this for? And uh, uh, what are your returns so far? Okay, so I've been doing it for, like with real money, I've been doing it since February 1st. And so the returns are 20.89% till today. And then the, the interesting thing is I wasn't really trying to do anything extraordinary. I wasn't trying to put on like a lot of risk. Wasn't trying to do anything that was like, like gambling or anything. But I started to think about studying each trade and really measuring the performance. It made me think about like the rest of my life in terms of measuring how Measuring my day to day, how do I get up in the morning? Do I take a walk before I just jump into what I'm doing, playing violin or practicing? And 
as you start to measure the, the performance of an algorithm, what you realize is it's not so much random, but when the emotions get heightened up, it can, it can become random. And as you look at the PNL, you can make decisions that really you wouldn't make in hindsight. So uh, <clears throat> let's talk about sort of your life philosophy at this point based on what you've learned. How would you characterize that in one or two sentences? Life lesson? Yeah. I mean, what's, oh. I, I think people are interested in uh, what are the drivers of your behavior? And uh, and in some ways, uh, you're talking about P&L statements, but you know, what do you see as the upside or what is the benefit uh, from what you're doing? I wanted to get into finance because I didn't want to have the pressure of inspiring people and trying to get something from them. I wanted to just have finance to be something that I just did for work, but not really the main part of who I am. Uh, I think it's important to focus on how you can give to someone else over than what you can get. Um, it's kind of interesting. Somebody asked me, they were like, Hey, do you sell the stay inspired hats? And I was like, I don't, I don't really know. I guess I put it up on the site, but I'm not really I'm not trying to take anything from anybody. If anything, the, the reason why I put the hat up was I wanted people to, to know how I felt, um, when I was uninspired, when I was like, you know, when the kids made fun of me in class because I couldn't play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or when I failed out of college, out of music college, I wanted people to know like how it felt to be uninspired. My parents got a divorce and I felt all alone. I felt like I was the problem at the time because I know everybody has different experiences that causes them to, to be uninspired pretty much. If, if I can just make a video, if I can talk to somebody for a few minutes, if I can play a tune on the violin, I think that right there, that really makes my day. Well, it's interesting. I, I don't know if you follow the Dalai Lama, uh, but uh, uh, you know, basically, he says uh, if you want to be happy, uh, be compassionate. If you want others to be happy, be compassionate. And in many ways, helping others, being of service, uh, not only benefits the other person, but frankly, it benefits you a lot. A yeah, I got a question. Um, no questions. So, no questions. <laughs> what What would you like to know, Eric? You can interview hey, so, me now. So I um, I actually saw your video on YouTube years ago. It was like a Google Talks. Ah, yeah, it was a Google Talks, and that was actually uh, the first time I heard you. And then when I got the um, DM message, I was like. <laughs> I remember you. I remember you from those all those years ago and you know 12 years ago I was pretty much you know in college trying to figure out life and yeah you you definitely inspire you already know this you inspire a lot of people to keep going and there's a reason why I wanted to jump on this podcast with you because I knew that it could inspire somebody else well, uh, you know, I think that uh, it is important uh, to try to uh, be of service. You know, you were talking about this issue about selling your hats or trying to make money. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with making money. It's if, though, you're looking through the lens of uh, I'm offering these individuals something that they want, and I'm, uh, if you will, selling it for a fair price— versus not having every action you take uh, as an action to maximally, maximally extract from people. And I think yeah. that's the difference. Uh, and and um, uh, so that's what I try to do. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with making money, living a good life, and uh, uh, but hopefully uh, it returns to you uh, in other ways, not only because you feel better and your physiology works better, but uh, also all the other things you may want, I think you get if you're focused on 
uh, caring for others or being of service to others. You know, this is part of the problem uh, sometimes. Have, have you ever seen this book called um, The Secret? Yeah, <laughs> I've seen that. <clears throat> yeah, and what is The Secret about? It's under this false notion that Western society has that promotes uh, this narrative that if you, in some ways, are selfish, focus on yourself, uh, want power, position, and money, that that's going to make you happy. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure you realize, uh, uh, as did I early on, that while I strove to accomplish all of those things, it left me empty. And uh, mm -hmm. what finally filled me uh, was the realization that I had the capability to inspire people. And uh, by doing so, uh, it came full circle and uh, been benefited me an incredible amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's powerful. It really is powerful. You never know who you can inspire. You never know who's watching it. And what's interesting about today is usually people are watching on their phone. It's just one person. It's not like an audience of people watching it at that time. It's a kind of a personal experience when somebody's watching something online now. And I think I realized that when I graduated from college around 2015, I realized that I had to be more critical of my words and not just talk without really thinking about how it impacts somebody. Not that I was doing all that and going crazy, but it just made me think about the things I say. How does it affect this person? How does it impact this person? Does it make this person feel excluded? And as I started to think about that, I think the message of Stay Inspired was able to reach more people because I took off all the labels, black, white, this, Christian, Muslim. I took off the labels off and I just said, here's this person and here's who they really are. Not what, not what the media tells them they are, not what the news, not what a country says they are. <laughs> it, it, make, it made me realize that, that that was more important than what everybody thinks that they are. Why do you think that <clears throat> so many uh, younger people uh, either want to be quote-unquote influencers or yeah. uh, they listen to influencers on social media? I think it's because it's what, it's what they see around them. When I would go to schools and play violin and talk to them about what it's like to be a violinist, um, I would ask the kids, hey, what do you want to be? And they would say, oh, I want to be a YouTuber. And I said, what does that mean to you, a YouTuber? Right? And they, was like, they said, well, you know, I just want to, I want to rap. I want to sing. And I said, well, I said to one kid, play me something. Do you got like a song or something I can hear? And uh, he gave me his Instagram. He was like, here's, here's my Instagram. It had like one picture. And I said, where's your, where's your music? Let me hear something. Just one. All I need is one. He said, I can't put it up because I'm afraid that it won't get enough likes. And I thought about that. I was like, man, he doesn't want to share his gift because of some pro what some programmer made in Silicon Valley, right? He made a little thing that says heart or like, and he doesn't want to share his gift just because of that. It because of how his peers will look at it just because of the like number or comments. And I thought about that and I said back to the kid, I said, you have to put yourself out there. You have to do it. You can't worry about what anybody says. You can't worry if it has enough likes. You can't worry if it's going to make you a million dollars or if it's going <laughs> to fit you on the street. You just got to do it because it's your calling. It's what you're supposed to be doing. And your life will it will work out once you follow behind what you're supposed to be doing on this planet. Well, I think that's one of the problems with so many people, though, is they're terrified of being judged by other people. And I think, unfortunately, some of the people who are influencers <clears throat> think that they have to be perfect. So they use all these filters or they use all of these techniques that make them look like... Uh, uh, they've solved all the world's problems for themselves and that they live a perfect life and everything is peachy. And, of course, 
for many of these uh, individuals, uh, they're just like you and I. They have to live in the real world. They suffer. They uh, fail. But they don't want anybody to know that. So they, they sort of try to wipe out everything that, that's not in the picture-perfect scenario they want to paint. But again, it's very toxic for a lot of people who are watching because they get confused that these people have figured it all out. And in fact, uh, I've met many of these people, and some of them are frankly miserable. And in fact, you know, if you use filters to change how you look, if you lie about every action that you're doing in the hopes you'll get more likes, now you're leading a completely empty life. Yeah. yeah I think the kids, they really need to know because they're more impressionable when it comes to social media. Um, not to say that an older person can't be impressionable, but as a kid, their mind is still still like growing and learning things. And they, all they see is every kid in my school has a phone. <laughs> and they all have all these social media apps. And they're all trying to appear, like you said, their best version. But that's not really who they are. It's just a projection of who they are. Right. Well, I think and, it's a projection of who they want to be, not yeah, actually who they are at all. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yep. What? Uh, so, uh, tell me more about uh, one uh, one way hope and uh, yeah. what you're trying to accomplish with that. And um, I think what do you have? Is it 12 million followers? Yeah, I, I think so. Yep. Mm -hmm. So did you plan on having so many followers? Is this just an organic I'll, process? Or, or tell me a little bit about it, what your goal was in terms of starting it, and then how it expanded to have this many followers. Mm -hmm. So I think it expanded further uh, as I started working with different people and talking to different people and really connecting more with people, not just being like, oh, hey, I'll give you my number, you know, I'll shoot you a text every now and then. But actually, like, really getting to know who people are. And one way hope, obviously, it started with my brother and all the things that we had went through. But I think it continued because my family started to work on our relationship more. And not what you were talking, early, what you were talking about earlier with, like, trying to appear as though everything is fine we actually really started talking about really difficult things that happened in the past. And for a long time, we kind of just ignored them. You know, the divorce, uh, the shooting, all these things. We just said, oh, that's just stuff that happened in the past. But we never really talked on a deep level. Like, for example, like, how are you? Like, how are you doing today? Like, are you good? <laughs> and I think, one way hope starts to expand as I start to be more just myself and not trying to be like this perfect thing or trying to have a hit song or trying to be anything really. And I started to interview people and started to talk to more people. And I realized that so many people have a story that people need to hear, but they may not have, you know, the platform to be able to deliver that message. Um, and so I've interviewed about so far it's like 60 people just about so far, just, I guess like calls like this <laughs> with me and you. <laughs> so we'll put this on your, on your, uh, one way hope uh, channel. What do you say? I said, we'll put this video on your one way hope channel. Um, you know what really put, what, why, why did I want to do this interview? No, no, no. I'm just saying that our interview, we can put on One Way Hope to inspire other people. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I really wanted to put this out here because I knew that people could be inspired um, by you and by your book um, Into the Magic Shop. I think it really, it definitely inspired me and I think it, it can inspire a lot of people. I know reading is not like something that a lot of people do, especially younger people. Cause I got two nephews. I haven't seen them 
crack open a book. <laughs> but I know they try to learn. They try to get better at learning different things and stuff like that. But I knew that your story, your story, how you grew up and the things that you went through. I think other people might not have the same story, but there's people that go through things, but they never really share it with anybody. They never say like, hey, I went through this. Hey, my parents were fighting. You know, people don't talk about having families who have or who are alcoholics. Like people don't talk about these things and they just kind of just sweep it up, sweep it under the rug, you know? <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. And it's sad because, you know, <clears throat> this may sound strange, but I used to think that uh, everybody's life was perfect but mine. That, yeah. uh, uh, you know, they didn't have the same type of arguments or their father wasn't an alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, even in uh, very affluent families, there can be very significant suffering uh, of the children who are li having to live in those experiences. And it may be a different type of suffering but it still uh, can be a very profound type of suffering, which results in them, you know, carrying baggage around for their whole lives. And I think uh, one of the most important things is to uh, be able to live authentically in the sense that uh, you're okay with yourself. And what I mean by that is, uh, as you probably know from my book, uh, you know, I, I never went around and advertised either that I was poor or, or my family situation uh, because I was ashamed. And I think, uh, again, it gets back to what we we're talking about earlier, this whole issue of uh, being judged and, uh, and then uh, being terrified that people aren't going to like you. And uh, for me, uh, I found that finally when I was able to sit with that, and not be ashamed of it, then in many ways everything changed. Because if you're out there open and honest, uh, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're the ones who decide if we're okay. And this is the problem is so many people go around and they keep looking for external affirmation. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to sit there and say, Listen, I understand. I, I appreciate I'm not perfect. I appreciate I've made mistakes. I appreciate I will continue to make mistakes. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a nice person. I'm a good person. And uh, and I'm okay with myself. But I think that's, uh, for so many people, such a, a, a difficult journey of acceptance. Um, and for some people, uh, they're terrified of that. But, you know, it's funny. I have given a lot of talks. And, uh, and I tell these personal stories that are quite painful, frankly. But what's interesting is as soon as my voice cracks or I shed a tear, then suddenly for, I've given permission for everyone to get deep in themselves and feel those same emotions. And I think that's really, uh, really important in terms of what we do. Yeah, it is super important. Yeah. What, uh, so what is it that you hope to accomplish at the end of, or as you continue with this work that you're doing? I mean, uh, um, is it to inspire as many people as possible? Is it to form a movement? Or uh, maybe even how can we work together to make the world a better place? What I want to do is I want to remind people that there's good things happening in the world. Because what is at the forefront is nothing but just tragedy, negativity, constant back and forth which, between different races, between different groups. And I think as that's plastered more in the front, it makes people forget about the people that are doing really great things for others. And I think watching negative news over and over every single day, it has a, it has a bad impact. It has to. It's just no way that it can be something that is good for you. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, part of the problem is, one, if you report good things happening all the t time, nobody's interested. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, if you have food in your cupboard and uh, uh, all the resources necessary and tons of friends, uh, 
you sort of are fat and happy and uh, uh, you don't react. But if there's a narrative created that is um, negative, that represents a potential threat, then that gets your attention and you turn towards that because that's how we're designed, right? We're not designed to uh, um, avoid, uh, or I should say, we are designed to avoid threat. And the problem is that that's because of that design, that's what we turn to. And media companies, their goal uh, is to make profit. And uh, that is through creating narratives that uh, create threat. And uh, sadly, that's where we're centered. Uh, because I think you'd probably agree 95% of people and 95% of the things going on in the world are actually good things. It's just though we're always focused on the most negative things. Yeah. I noticed how when I would have a friend or a colleague come up to me and they would, I would say, how's your day been? Your week been good or stuff like that. And they would be like, oh man, you know, it's all right. But did you see what happened over here? This bad thing that happened, they would just dwell on it and just keep going and keep going. I started to notice how that would have an effect on me and just my overall mood for the rest of the day. Um, and that's the that's the reason why I get on and make videos and I edit it and make sure like the message is as clear as possible. And um, each video, I'll spend months working on it. And I'll just, just picking it apart, making sure it's like, you know, the most inspiring video somebody can see. Um, I think it's interesting because as we think of video, you know, it's moving pictures, right? I think video has, it can have even a more impact than a picture sometimes. People would just glance at a picture, but a video, it just, it can imprint in the mind over and over and again. And if it's negative, that's where it goes. If it's positive, it goes that direction. And I don't say like negative is a bad thing. It's not, it's not like, because there are things that happen in the world that I think, you know, we should know and be informed about. Um, but I think we, we can add in, you know, some of the good too. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree with you. And people actually like that on, on one level, obviously, apparently 12 million people uh, do in terms of your followers, because that is what connects you to people when you tell these positive stories, because it also, I think, gives people uh, hope that their mm. own situation has the ability to turn around or that other people have struggled and gone through similar circumstance and they've been okay. And I think the type of messages that you're promoting and other people promote are really uh, something that the world really needs and wants and connects with. And anything we can do to counteract the toxicity and the negative effect, I mean, you only look and need to look into the political situation where, you know, you have people who promote hate and and uh, separation uh, uh, of people instead of understanding uh, that we're all in this together. And it's interesting how sometimes they demonize people for things that are out of their control. And whether it's race, whether it's sexuality, whether it's... Uh, sometimes religion, that all of these people deserve love and acceptance. And uh, especially if they're not interfering with your world. And it fascinates me how people immediately jump on this bandwagon of saying, well, you have to do what I think is right or how I live. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just seems it's sad because it separates them and it's not fair to other people. Yeah, it's. I wanted to give people a chance um, when they would, when I would do an interview with people, um, to tell their story, like what they've been through. And even though the interviews will be like thirty minutes to an hour, it's just three minutes. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what do I, what do I put in, what do I take out, because I don't want to take out the story. But I know I just want to pack in three minutes into this video because sometimes it's hard for people to watch a long video. Sure. On Facebook, it's especially Facebook, it's sometimes it's hard. 
And I've been leaning more towards just leaving it in and just leaving everything up, you know? <laughs> and uh, is that your goal to continue this work? Uh, I mean, is that you now or is this a temporary thing as you look for the next uh, um, job, if you will? Or is this what you're committed to at this point? This is what I'm committed to because I realized how how good it made me feel to see somebody. Before I would have somebody come up and they would be like, oh, I've seen you play the violin. I think you're famous. And now it's more so that story that you shared was very inspiring and it changed my day. When I get that, I'm like, oh man, it just changes. It really changes my day too, to see that those responses from people. Um, it's more of a, it's less of like a, ooh, look at, I see this guy, he's famous. And more of, I like what you're doing because it inspires me to keep going. It's different. So uh, tell me uh, one or two instances in your interviews, uh, what were the ones that were most inspiring to you, I mean, what made you sort of stop and sit there and say, oh my God, this is extraordinary. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think which one was the best. Because they were all really great interviews. Um, there was a man, his name is Daniel Parsons. Uh-huh. And he was in Baltimore one night and he saw a guy next to a tree and he had a rope and he was about to um, to hang himself, but he couldn't really see. So he started filming him, you know, just for his protection. So, that, you know, nobody could say like he did anything, you know, over here. And as he started to film him, he realized that this guy was trying to hang himself. He saw the rope and he said, don't do it. Don't don't end your life. And in that video, the guy said, nobody cares about me. And in the, in the moment he said that, his phone was ringing and it was his mom calling. Like she was calling him the whole time, like, please, 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 like uh, answer the phone. He was like, man, nobody care about me. I'm out here, it's in the dark, nobody cares. He said, somebody cares about you. He said, somebody's calling you right now. And the guy just started like breaking down, crying. And, you know, it's, it's amazing because he was there at the right moment. And, you know, I, I really thought about like, I thought about sharing his face and like what he looked like, but I knew he was still in like a healing journey. Cause I remember what, um, I remember what my, I'm sorry. I, I understand. It's okay, Eric. Sorry. <laughs> no, take your time. Uh, but, you know, this is the power of these types of stories. Uh, you know, they profoundly affect you. Obviously, this has affected you, but, you know, the reality is that story hopefully will um, inspire others and... Uh, and again, you know, it's it's um, it's interesting. I, I recently gave a talk, and um, the group who asked me to speak, they said, um, "We're going to create a bench in your name." And uh, I said to them, <clears throat> "I said, you know, for what? What do you what do you think that will do?" And it's a place where. Um, those who are suffering or need someone to listen to them can come and sit down and the nature uh, and the purpose of that bench is for other to invite others to be there for them. And, you know, in some ways what you're doing is, is you're offering that bench to sit on that let people uh, see uh, uh, the impact of uh, being kind, being generous, being thoughtful, being compassionate. Um, so, but maybe you can tell us the rest. 
<laughs> yeah, it's my bad. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Listen, I'm sorry. I, uh, yeah, but it, it just—I was gonna say the 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 story really reached me because that's exactly how my brother was. He was out in the streets. He was just on drugs. Like he thought nobody cared about him because family got divorced. My dad was out. You know, he was gone and family was broken apart. He just felt like nobody cared. And, uh, you know, my brother, he had times where he would be out and we'd be calling him. Like, I'd be like, where are you at, bro? Like, where are you at? Like, I need to know where you're at, man. And, um, that story when, when Daniel had, you know, posted the video, you know, of course he was worried about people saying, you know, oh, you just, you just recorded this for clout. You just recorded this because you wanted to be seen and and I, I thought about, he said that in an interview. And I, I was like, why would somebody say this, right? Because he's showing people what's really happening out here. Not the stuff that you see, you know, in, in the highlight reels, but actually what people are actually going through. And he ended up helping the guy and, you know, he put him in a, um, a rehab program. People started reaching out. Steve Harvey, all types of different influencers or celebrities, people who can like, you know, just at the drop of a hat, just do something. <laughs> um, and I know his journey's not over, the young man he saved. It's something, something made me want to, I had, I had this interview for a year, but I had never edited the video. I just had it there. I just kept watching the video. I kept watching it. And I didn't really know how to tell the story. But then one day after a year, I woke up and I was like, I think I think I want to share this story. I, I was afraid of sharing the story because I didn't want to like touch on suicide because I felt like that might make people like want to commit suicide or make them think about it more or something like that. And I called my brother and he was I asked him, I said, do you think I should put this video? I don't really know. Uh, he said, I think you should put the video because there's people going through exactly what I went through which is feeling like you don't matter. Well, you know, I think in some ways um, it comes, uh, brings us full circle um, to make us realize that everyone matters and we matter. And it's forgetting that we matter. And again, Believing uh, this narrative that uh, uh, no one cares about us, and uh, I can't think of really anyone who no one cares about, and uh, uh, any human life, in fact, any life in general, uh, is uh, worth protecting, supporting, and I think it is our job to promote uh the thriving of all of us, if it's within our capacity. But as you're already finding out, I think all people need is just a little bit of inspiration. And uh, it can be a word, it can be uh, just taking the time and looking somebody in the eye and letting them know you care, uh, that changes everything. Yeah. There. Yeah. I don't know, you, you made me cry. <laughs> Maybe cry, man. You know, people actually. <laughs> you know, uh, my brother was the only person that could make me cry like that. Man, but uh, uh, that's yeah, okay. It was good. It was great tears. You know, it's like yeah. you 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 help to like paint. You know how to paint a picture. I don't know how you do it, but you just that's a gift. You just know how to just. Well, uh, you know, it, it's funny you say that because, uh, uh, in some ways. Uh, I have people who work with me and they'll say, well, that's really your superpower because <laughs> you bring people to their heart. And uh, and on the one hand, it can be painful, but on the other hand, it makes you feel and it makes you feel uh, deeply and it makes you uh, hopefully inspired to keep doing what you're doing and to be a better person and to help others. And I think you're already there, but... Uh, it's still okay for me to make you cry. 
<laughs> it feels like the Michael Jordan meme, the crying meme, where he's like, I can't believe y'all gonna make me cry. At Kobe's funeral, he was like, but Kobe, he's the only man who can make me cry. <laughs> they were gonna turn into a meme on the internet. But yeah, I realize, um, you know, I I realize it's good to cry. You know, it's like I think people make fun of you for being uh being human. Especially guys. I think it's more so they feel they feel like, oh, you you're supposed to be tough, man. Like you can't be, you know, can't be there crying. Well, and, that. and that's the sad thing is that people believe that. Uh, as I told you, you know, I mean, uh, when I give a talk and when my voice cracks or I shed a tear, that gives everyone permission. And uh, uh, it's interesting. I was giving a talk one time in Sun Valley at a wellness festival. And there are about 250 people in the audience. And again, uh, I broke up in some ways telling this story. Suddenly the whole room is crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then a woman comes up to me afterwards. She says, you know, I was so moved by your talk. And everyone was waiting around there. And I gave her a hug, which then led to me giving 250 hugs to all the people. Oh. <laughs> because uh, that connection and that uh, emotion, and when you share that with somebody, it's really, really uh, powerful. And it helps them. And again, uh, that's what our mission is, to be of service and, and to help uh, each other. Uh, and I think that's uh, uh, really important. So, uh, Eric, I, I am hopeful that we uh, are able to stay in touch and connect and maybe even do some projects together. And I'm glad I was able to make you cry uh, today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I enjoy, you know, I enjoyed this, uh, this interview. Um, it's a pleasure to actually be able to talk to you. Well, you that's know, after so many years, you know, you never know who you're going to run into. And then when Hillary, she uh, sent me the DM, I was just, you know, my brother, he checks some of the stuff and he's like, you got an interview. Somebody wants to interview. And I was like, what is it about? You know, like, cause I, I'm just so busy with stuff. And, but he said, it's uh, into the magic shot. I was like, I read that book <laughs> when I was in college. What? And, but it said James. And I'm like, what? Jim. No, Jim Doty, you know, <laughs> so it threw me off for a bit, but, um, yeah, you, you have an amazing, you, I mean, you already know this, you have an amazing thing that you've been doing for years and I feel more people can still see more of what you're doing Well, uh, and uh, the method that you're spreading. Well, that's really kind of you, uh, just to throw out a couple of things for self-promotion, which I, I didn't really anticipate doing, but I think, uh, one is, uh, I do have a new book coming out. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called uh, Mind Magic, the Neuroscience of Manifestation and How It Changes Everything. And in many ways, that's the antithesis of the secret, which is uh, oriented around uh, me, me, me. And uh, my book is the antithesis of that. It's about how can I be of service? And if I'm of service, I, at the end of the day, get everything I want. So it's the difference between understanding what you want may not be what you need. And, uh, and then the other thing is, which we sort of peripherally touched upon, is you know how so many people are afraid of being judged. And, um, and this creates an immense amount of stress, anxiety, and depression for a lot of people. And one of the things I've been working on the last uh, 18 months is actually creating an app to support uh, people and to act as, if you will, a trusted friend. And uh, that's called happy, H-A-P-P-I dot A-I. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, um, but it's, it, it's, uh, it's very, very different from these traditional apps because one, it actually analyzes your emotion throughout your conversation uh, and it has a conversational AI knowledge base focused on psychology and compassion-focused therapy, which actually is combined with a human avatar. Uh, so uh, you may want to take a look at that. But uh, uh, we're going to be launching it in January, but one of the focuses is on um, individuals, uh, adolescents who are suffering, and hopefully uh, it will give them support and tools 
uh, when they do feel like no one cares. Wow, this is amazing. Yeah, I'm going to look out for it. It's called Mind Magic, right? That's the new book, Mind Magic. Okay. Uh, you can pre-order it right now. It comes out May 7th. And then, oh, May 7th? Yes. My Magic. Get My Magic May 7th. Exactly. And then- Get uh, My Magic May 7th. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, happy.ai, H-A-P-P-I.ai. And- Wait, uh, how'd, you, how'd, you come about, how'd you come about happy? You mean the name? Well, with just the idea. Like, how did that, how'd that come about? Well, frankly, I never know how my ideas come about. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, I have uh, I uh, have no idea where this second book came from. Uh, it just sort of happens, and uh, I just go along with it. And and you know, in some ways, it's what we're talking about. Uh, you know, there's a thing that sits with us, and it's there. And uh, if we listen to it, it um, guides us along. And I think if we have uh, at least try as best we can to have a pure heart and listen to what we're being told, uh, then magic can happen. And not only for you, but for a lot of people. And I think maybe uh, uh, that's the message. And yeah, it, you can go check it out on the Happy website. Uh, now, the reason it's happy is because if you remove the Y and put an I in the word happy, you have AI, right? Oh, you know what? <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Come on, Eric, dude, you should have been on top of that, man. See, I knew you were a neuro neurosurgeon for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, man, that's good. That's you good. know, it's funny because uh, uh, a, a, a rabbi actually uh, uh, put a quote in my uh, book, uh, which let me see if I can find it because uh, I just happen to have my book right here. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, but that's. That really was because I'm actually signing these books uh, for a woman who asked me uh, to. But this rabbi, he said, um, he said, Dr. James Doty, a well-known surgeon, uses the twin scalpels of wisdom and compassion to operate on our consciousness. He's a surgeon of the soul, an atheist who will have you gasping, oh, my God, this is a book. This book is an explosion of grace and enlightenment. And hopefully uh, that's something that we share, uh, our goal to uh, be, neuro, uh, be surgeons of the heart. Yeah. Okay, well, my I friend, you be well, we'll be in touch, and I appreciate uh, uh, your time. Thank you, Dr. Dodman. I appreciate you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. You already know what it is. Stay inspired <laughs> there we have it and if you want a hat to support eric's work send him an email and he'll send you a hat to stay inspired now i'm now i'm hawking your goods here you what what have you turned me into <laughs> i appreciate you Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.